Good morning. A reading from 1 Thessalonians 2, 13 through 16. And we also thank you, God, continually, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as human words, but as it actually is the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Jesus Christ. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to everyone in their efforts to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, everyone. You guys doing all right? All right. I'm hobbling a little bit. I did something to my foot, and so if I don't have these shoes on, I'm walking. Uh, it's not. It's not a pretty sight. So I just like walking in my house and like turning and then screaming out in pain, and I sound like I'm two years old and everything's gone wrong in my life. Well. Uh, this morning, we're not going to focus on my pain. We're going to focus on the word of the Lord. Um, so our goal with this series, what we've been in, we've been talking about First Thessalonians. And this is a letter that, that Paul has written to a church that is this model church. And so I want to talk about what the goal is for this series. It's to ultimately invite the word of God to do a mighty work in us, right? That's the goal as we dive into Scripture. It's to invite the Word of God to do a mighty work in us so that we might become that type of model church that Paul's talking about here, so that we would be people. We would be uh, people, a church filled—goodness, I can't talk this morning—a church filled with biblically faithful and missionally zealous disciples of Jesus Christ. That's the, the goal as we dive into this Scripture, to invite the Word of God to do a mighty work in us. We need to remember, as anytime we come to Scripture, anytime we, we live our everyday lives, that God has brought about something incredible in us, right? He, he's brought about His salvation in us when we were deserving of wrath. When we were God's enemies, he did something incredibly mighty in us. And everything that we do in our lives should be lived in a worshipful response to that. We should be living our lives in light of that salvation, in light of the gospel message. We should be offering our entire beings every single day to God. As we've talked about many times, we are saved from our sin and we are saved for mission, but we're also saved to a certain type of life. We're saved to walk in the way of Jesus. And this is really critical for us. It's important for us to remember that that Christian isn't just this word that means whatever we want it to believe, but Christian carries this certain connotation to it. In fact, if we look at the book of Acts, the first thing that the Christians are called isn't Christian at all. They're called followers of the way. Followers of the way. Their lives were marked by being a follower of the way of Jesus. And in other words, they lived in a peculiar type of way. It wasn't just however they wanted to live. They lived peculiar lives marked by following the way of Jesus based off his teachings and not whatever they wanted it to be. They ultimately embodied a a different way of life in the midst of a culture that wasn't having values the same as they valued, right? 
They lived in a different way. And they remained committed to this even in the midst of trial, even in the midst of persecution, even in the midst of great difficulty. This is something that, that we need to learn. We need to learn from the example of the early church, putting such faith in the gospel message and the transformative work of Jesus that we say, come whatever may, whatever we face, whatever is going, around, going on around us, that we would be rooted and grounded in the way of Jesus, seeking to live for him in spite of everything else. There's much for us to learn, right? As we work through our section today, we're going to do that. We're going to learn more about to be, how to be faithful churches in the midst of an unfaithful culture. That's what this scripture is ultimately about today. How to be a faithful church in the midst of an unfaithful culture with many who may oppose our message. Let's pray before we dive in. Father, we position ourselves under your authority. And we hold up your word and we invite it to search our hearts, to teach us, to convict us, to mold us. And we need your truth to sink in. And help us to submit all things to you. May your word do a mighty work in us this morning. In Christ's name, amen. So we're going to break down our, our section of Scripture today into two smaller sections, and I'm going to break it down a little bit differently than the typical uh, verse structure that we have. So we're going to begin with uh, verses 13 through 14a, which is the first half of verse 14. So let's read that again. And we also thank God continually, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God which is indeed at work in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. And so as we look at all of Paul's letters, this type of structure is a bit unusual for Paul. Paul doesn't usually give a, a prayer of thanksgiving at the beginning of the letter and then go into another prayer of thanksgiving halfway through the letter. This is, again, an unusual thing for Paul. But again, this is an unusual church, right? They're a church that's the model church, a church that is full of people that Paul and his associates are always thanking God for. And so it comes up again as, as Paul is about to give more instruction to this church. He's overflowing with thanksgiving because of what God has done and what this church has done. That they, they saw God do a mighty work within this church. He's thankful ultimately because the word of God has done something mighty in them. He's thankful because of how the church received and accepted the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This isn't a church that just gave lip service to Jesus, right? They're not a church who, who said one thing but lived in another way. They were a church that gave their entire lives. When they came to accept the gospel message, they say, we really accept this. Like, not we, we, yeah, we kind of believe it, but we're still going to dip our toe in over there. I shouldn't do that. I'm going to end up falling if I, if I do that. They're a church that they gave everything to the Lord. They said, this is the word of God. This isn't just a human invention. This is something that's deeper than that, that's more meaningful than that. These were people that, that recognized, like Peter in John 6, that Jesus has the words of eternal life. 
But Jesus has the words of eternal life. There are people that have come to believe and to know that Jesus alone is the Holy One of God. This isn't something they just believe in their head, right? It's not something where they say, yeah, you know, I, I can get behind it logically. This, this makes sense of the world. They didn't just believe it in their head. It sunk into their innermost being. It was a message that took a hold of them. They experienced it. Something that, that was inside of them. And it wasn't just this, this one-time experience either. It wasn't something that they experienced in the past, but rather it was a continual experience. The Word was alive and active in them. That's what Paul says here. It was at work in those who believe. In other words, it was producing fruit continually in them. It was putting them to death and putting uh, Christ to life inside of them. It was drawing them further and further into conformity with the image of Christ. And I think this is an important encouragement for all of us. Because if we, we look at our lives, we're all going to say, I'm not as far as I want to be in my following of Jesus, right? Any, anyone here arrived yet? Put your hand down, Roz. Welcome back. <laughs> Roz like, I've been in Romania. I've found all the secrets. I'm back. None of us have arrived. We all want to keep going in our walk with the Lord. And there's always this insurmountable place where we're like, I, I want to get over that. And it seems hard and it seems difficult. But there's encouragement here that God is alive and active in our lives. If we haven't reached that place where we're like, yes, I'm just holy and everything's right in my life, that's okay because God is still at work in you. He's still alive. He's still active. God doesn't just work in us the moment that we believe and say, okay, you're good to go. Go figure it out on your own. That's not what God does. He continues to work in us, bringing about our transformation. It's the Holy Spirit at work in us. God is always with us. Always. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. He doesn't just say, okay, accept my gospel and then be over there and good luck. No, he's always there closer than a brother to us walking with us. Here's the encouragement. God is not done with you. He's not done with you. He is not through with you. He's still molding you. He's still forming you. He still loves you. He still has great things for you. He still wants to do something mighty inside of you. And what our task is, is it's learning to yield to him, right? It's learning to say, not my way, but your way. Not my will, but your will. I must become lesser and you must become greater. That's what our task is. Our task is dying to ourselves, following the way of Jesus, saying, God, have your way in me. I want to become more like you. See, something we often wish is that God would drag us towards holiness. Like, wouldn't that be great if God just like took a hold of us and was like, you're coming this way whether you like it or not. It, it would be wonderful, but that's not what God does. He doesn't drag us towards holiness while we're kicking and screaming like a toddler. He invites us towards holiness. He says, this is my way. He, he's tender and loving towards us. We have to follow him to where he's leading us. He puts still waters there, but we have to drink it. It does say he makes us lie down, right? Sometimes he, no, I'm just, I'm going to stop. Intrusive thoughts. 
He's not going to drag us towards holiness. We have to follow him there. Now, here's the important part. God does desire to transform us. He does desire to create a sanctified life in us, and he partners with us to see that happen. It's God's agency and human agency coming together to produce holy lives in us. Now, there's this this struggle that we've all had. We've all wanted to put something to death in our lives, some sin, some temptation. We want to go past it. And likely, if you're you're like me, you've prayed over it over and over again. You're like, God, I just need deliverance. And we just find ourselves stuck in the same cycles, right? There's a common experience in the Christian life where there's something that we hope to get over, but it's difficult to do it. And we're like, God, why haven't you done this yet? Why haven't you taken this away? Why haven't you, you delivered me from the sin and this temptation in my life? If God is alive and active, why haven't I seen victory yet, right? Why isn't this working out? Well, it's because we're asking God to do something we're unwilling to do ourselves. We're asking God to do something that we're unwilling to do ourselves, which is overcoming our sin. Like, God, will you just overcome this? Will you do something? And God's like, yes, I will do it as you obey. As Felicia Masonheimer says, the strength comes as you obey. It's something Brooke shared, and I had to text her this morning. I'm like, did I get that quote right? Yes. The strength comes as you obey. God will empower you and transform your inner person, but you still have to choose to walk in that transformation. He's not going to drag you towards it. You have to choose to walk in that transformation, to, to, to root your minds in the new life, not the old life. Not in the, the flesh, but in the spirit. To root yourself in the gospel message like the church is doing in Thessalonica to say, this is the way I'm going to walk in. I'm not going to depart from it. The gospel is true. I believe it wholeheartedly. This is what rules my life. Not sin, not struggle, not anything else. We must be a people who find our joy and our meaning and our life in God, not in the things that separate us from God, not in all the other things. We need to root ourselves in Christ Jesus. All right, let's move on. So Paul mentions that the Thessalonians became imitators of God's churches in Judea who are also in Christ. Now, Paul is doing a couple of things here. Again, he, he's talking to a church that maybe have had some difficulty and some trials and some tribulations, people telling them that, hey, you're not really with God. You're not, you're not part of the family of God. And so again, he's situating them as part of God's family. He's saying that you guys are, are not alone. You're part of the, the larger universal church. This isn't a church that is lone rangers. They're intimately connected to all God's people. That's one thing that, that Paul is doing here, but he's also talking about their kinship of experience. He's saying that you, you all have experienced the exact same thing that all the other churches are experiencing. The difficulties that you're facing aren't unique to you. In fact, you're becoming imitators of all God's churches that are having difficulty in the same way. These are people who have sought to imitate Christ, becoming like him in all their ways. Like, we're going to to follow Jesus even when everyone else is against me, and they face difficulty for that. They become imitators of Christ, like, like Paul had already talked about 
earlier in this letter. And this is the normative practice for those who are in Christ. Become imitators of Christ. God has called all Christians into imitation. It's called all Christians into imitation. That word imitation is the word that we would traditionally know as discipleship. This imitation or this discipleship, becoming a follower of Jesus, meaning we actually follow him, is something that's necessary for our spiritual maturity. And without it, we actually risk going astray. We risk turning aside from Christ. And what I want to do now is I want to connect this back to where Paul mentions that the church received and accepted the gospel as the word of God. Now, if you're paying attention to this, the the word accepted and received, it's very reminiscent to something Jesus actually says himself when he's talking about the parable of the sower. And we talked about this uh, late last year as we went through the parable of the sower. Jesus is giving this example of the word of God going forth and it producing different results based off the type of soil. You all remember that, right? So I want to read a portion of that to us to to help us connect all of this. Mark 4, 16 through 20. Jesus is explaining the parable and he says, Others like seeds sown on rocky places, they hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seeds sown among thorns, they hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop, some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. This is a church that didn't just receive the word and then quickly go astray when persecution comes to them. No, this is a a church who receives the word, accepts the word, allows it to do a mighty work in them, and it produces fruit, produces a crop. This is a church that has been rooted and grounded in Jesus. They don't fall away. They don't go a different way. They become like Christ, even in suffering. They put on the way of Jesus. They bear reproach for the name of Jesus, becoming like him in all things. This is a church that has cultivated the soil of their hearts. They've ridded of rocks and weeds and thorns, all of that 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 hinders our development into mature disciples of Jesus. They've done the hard work of cultivation so that the word of God might grow unencumbered in their lives. They've rid themselves of everything else so that nothing can choke out the Word of God. They've rooted themselves in that. And this is the hallmark of a true disciple of Jesus. The hallmark of a disciple of Jesus. Those who are willing to root themselves in the gospel and say, on Christ I stand and nothing else. And no matter what comes my way, I'm still rooted here in Christ. Hallmark true disciples. Put ourselves in Christ to rid ourselves of everything else. This was a characteristic that marked the early church. 
one that marked the early church. Everywhere you go, there were people that were expected to follow the way of Jesus and to really follow him, no matter what comes their way. Persecution, trials, difficulty, pain. It's expected of the early church. But sadly, somehow we've seen it as optional. Like, you know, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to follow his ways. I'm going to go after him until things get hard. And then, you know, it's a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of that. Or, you know, I'm going to follow Jesus and his ways, and I like his ethics and his teachings, but as soon as persecution comes, I'm going to fight back. We need to put on the way of Jesus. We don't individually get to decide what it means to follow Jesus. We don't get to follow Jesus each in our own way. The Word of God shows us what it looks like to follow after Christ. And we must submit ourselves to the Word of God, receiving it, accepting it, not as a human invention, but as the very Word of God. As Christians sitting here today, we need to invite once again the Word of God to do a mighty work in those of us who believe seeking to become like Jesus, to imitate him so that he might produce an abundant harvest in us and through us, just like he did in this Thessalonican church. In the midst of suffering, in the midst of trials, in the midst of persecution, we need to learn to die to ourselves, to die to our ways, and to seek to have the Christ life in us. Not life as we want it, but life as Christ wants it, inside of us. Let's read the second section of our passage today. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews, talking about the Judean churches, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. And just an interpretive note, that word at last there is also translated as completely. Uh, And so you may have a note down at the bottom of your Bible about that. I think the completely makes a bit more sense as you're reading it in context. Uh, So that's just an interpretive note there. And so I'm going to read it as completely as we're, we're talking through this. As we look at these verses, I think they can be a bit difficult for us. I think we can read this and not exactly know what to do with verses like this. I think if we do a little work, if we spend a little time in them, they become a a bit clearer. We we see their intention and purpose, why why Paul is including these words in, in the letter to this church. And ultimately, they serve both as a rebuke and as a comfort. They serve as a rebuke and a comfort. And so let's talk about this early church just for a moment to to put us in the right frame of mind to, to understand the context of this letter. We need to remember that everyone and everything was against the church. At the time that, that Paul is writing this, everyone and everything is against the Christians in the first century. This is an obscure group of Jewish and Gentile followers of Jesus. 
It's not, they're not the majority religion. They're not the majority culture. It's an obscure small group and they're bearing much reproach for believing in Christ. For believing that, that Jesus is the Messiah. They're, they're bearing reproach for actually following Him instead of going along with the flow like everyone else. That they're doing their lives differently. There's a group of people that, that represents a tiny fraction of the people in the Roman Empire. It's important for us to remember that. We don't have that context in the 21st century. When Paul's writing this, Christians aren't the majority. They're this tiny little group. Everyone, everything is against them. And yet, despite all odds, without force, without fighting back, the gospel spread like wildfire throughout the known world. Despite everything being against the church, despite persecutions and trials and all of that, the gospel continues to spread throughout the known world. This is important for us to remember because as soon as anything bad happens for us and we're like, the world is against us, how can the gospel go forth? We need to remember this, that everything, everyone was against the gospel in the first century and the church grew. The gospel Spread The places where, where Christianity is growing fastest in the world are the places where there's the most persecution, where it's the most difficult to be a Christian. You cannot stop the Word of God. Paul's spending some time here speaking of those who are enemies of the church, enemies of God, enemies of His way. Their goal is simply this, to stop the spread of Christianity and to prove themselves right. That's their goal. They're like, we are the people who are saved. We're really God's people. And so therefore, you're wrong and we're going to fight against that. But what, is, what do we know to be true? You can't stop the Word of God. There's really strong language here about the persecutors of the Thessalonian church. Paul says that they're like the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and they drove us out also. Now, I I think there's some important work that we need to do here and some important things that we need to acknowledge. Uh, Scriptures like this have been misused and abused to to, to portray hatred towards the Jewish people. And, And first of all, we need to understand that Paul is not saying this to all Jewish people saying that all of them are are terrible and you need to disregard them. Instead, he's talking about specific Jewish people who have made themselves enemies of God based off how they live their lives. We know this to be true because Paul just talked about the Judean churches, churches in Judah who were full of Jewish believers of Jesus. He's not speaking and circling all Jewish people in one breath and speaking against them. He's talking about those who have set themselves against the church. Just like those who killed Jesus, just like those who killed the prophets, those who are actively working against the apostles. And this type of rebuke is a common rebuke throughout Scripture. It's one that Jesus uses himself against the religious leaders, saying that they had killed the prophets. It's one that the the prophets use, saying that you killed other prophets, and now God is sending me to you to declare the word of God, and you're probably going to kill me too. 
is a common rebuke throughout Scripture. And something that we need to get, and I think Paul is trying to help us understand, is there are always going to be those who position themselves against the work God is doing. There are always going to be those who position themselves against the work God is doing and think that they are in the right. They think they are doing the right thing by doing what they're doing. We need to recognize this. And we need to also recognize how we're supposed to act in light of that. There's a specific way of life that we're supposed to adopt. We don't just say, these are enemies of God and therefore we fight them with fire, just like they're fighting against us. That's not how we're to live our lives. I think it's important to note that while this is a rebuke, while this is a rebuke, it's not intended to inspire hatred or to harden hearts. That's not what this is supposed to do. We're not supposed to come to the Word of God, to these uh, rebuke-type passages, and say, look, see? Look at how bad you are. That shouldn't be what happens inside of it. does, we need to pray for ourselves. That should never be our intention with the Word of God to whack people with it. It's not the goal here. What does Jesus do in the Sermon on the Mount? calls us, calls his followers to pray for those who persecute them. Man, that's hard. That's really difficult to do. I don't want to do that. It's not something that comes natural to us. Our sin nature says, no, vengeance. I don't want to pray for these people. I want to destroy them. I want the wrath of God, the fury of God to fall upon them. Jesus calls us to pray for those who persecute us, those who are vile, those who insult us. Jesus calls us to love our enemies. Yikes. The way of Jesus is different than our way. The life of Jesus is different than our life. See, the gospel is to do a fully transformative work in us. So that when things like this happen, when there's persecution and there's trials and there's difficulties, because those things will happen, we know how to rightly respond. And we say, God, I leave it to you. You're the one who pours out wrath, not me. You're the one who establishes justice, not me. You're the one working and moving and you will accomplish your ways, not me or to keep the ethics of Jesus ever before our minds, his teachings ever before our minds, to live a certain way. And in the flesh, in the flesh, this is impossible. Like, you poke me hard enough, I'm going to respond. Like, in the flesh, it's difficult to do this. But in Christ, it's not only possible, it's expected. Jesus calls us to a fully transformed life. And do you know how we put our enemies to shame? Do you know how we put our, the enemies of the gospel of Jesus to shame? By continuing to follow the way of Jesus, even in the midst of persecution. Continuing to follow his way when the world follows its way. It's us saying to the world, no matter what you do to me, no matter what you say, no matter how hard you fight against me, I have found a better way and I will not depart from it. 
I have found the better way and I won't depart from it. Even if the enemies of the church put, put Christians to death, God's gospel cannot be stopped. We need to get that. We need to understand that because when we think that we're the defenders, we're going to fight back in ways that God doesn't intend for us to fight back. The gospel cannot be stopped. The early church father, Tertullian, he once said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the of the church. And what he means by that is no matter how gruesomely, no matter how fiercely the world and the Roman Empire and the persecutors fought against Christianity, even killing those who were followers of Jesus, the gospel still went forth. The harder the world fought against the gospel of Jesus, the more seeds were planted in these people who faced death and said, I will not recant. I will not go away. I will not not deny my Savior. I will not deny the one who loves me. The one who gave his life for me. You want to kill me? I can become like Jesus in my death, bearing reproach for the name of Jesus? Yes, sign me up for that. And we're like, no, 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 no. Don't want that. The early church saw it as something that was preferable. Preferable to bear reproach for the name of Jesus. To remain cool, calm, and collected in the face of adversity and pressure and tribulation. Even as Nero is using the church and Christians for human torches, they don't fight back against him. They continue to live out the ethics of of Jesus. No matter how hard people fight against the gospel, it will spread. And it spreads in this way and this way only through spirit-regenerated and spirit-baptized hearts who are faithful, who are faithful to God in the midst of unfaithfulness. Faithful to God in the midst of the unfaithfulness of the world. That is how Christianity spreads. Now let's talk a bit more about those who do the persecuting. It's important for us to talk about that because Paul is talking about them. How does God relate to them? How does God relate to those who, who have set themselves as enemies of the church? Well, those who persecute the church ultimately show themselves not to just be enemies of the church, but to be enemies of God. God cannot be mocked. He set a way of justice. He has enacted a law, and he cannot be mocked. This rebuke in 1 Thessalonians of those who wage war against the gospel very clearly states that it is these people who will receive the wrath of God. Those who live as enemies of God will receive the wrath of God. They will experience hell. Eternal separation from God. It's not a reality that we like to talk about. Not a reality that we, we like to think about. We don't like to think of God as wrathful. But God being loving and God being wrathful, they're not two different uh, things that are at odds with one another. They're both true. Because God is love, he is also a God of wrath. Because he loves fiercely, he is a God of wrath. Because he has set a way. He says, walk in this way. 
He's given us the way to walk in. And those who position themselves against that are saying, God, I, I don't care about your way. I'll live for myself instead of you. Because God is a God of justice, he is a God of wrath. God will avenge evil. That is something that that we should hang our hats on. God will avenge evil. He will establish perfect justice in the entire world. Those who currently war against the way of God, those who, who live in ways contrary to the way of God, they will ultimately be defeated. God will establish perfect peace. His perfect garden city that he, he intended in the beginning will be fully established through the entire earth. So this provides some comfort to us in kind of a weird way. Because what it provides comfort to us as is it helps us to know that because that is what God will do, we don't have to fight back. Because God will establish justice and he will pour out his wrath, we don't have to pour out our wrath. Well, How many times should we forgive them? Even seven times, Lord? How about 70 times seven? So I'll let Rob do the math for me. It's a lot. He's called us to a certain way of life, to trust him, not to trust ourselves, not to trust our ways. This is the comfort that goes along with the rebuke. Paul is reminding the church that God is not unmoved by what they're going through. God sees the evil. He sees those who who live contrary, and he's not unmoved by them. Up there being like, oh, yep, yep, that's happening. Wish I could do something about it. He will do something about it. That's something we can hang our hats on. Our God is a God of justice. And all of his enemies will receive in time his wrath completely. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is separation from God. The wages of sin is hell and wrath. There's something that we need to remember here. I think there's, there's two different sides. I'll, I'll get to that in just a second. There, there's two different sides of us. Some of us are, are really like, yes, wrath is coming. Vengeance is the Lord's. And we're excited about that. And then there's other of us who are like, man, I don't know about this wrath thing. Right? It's difficult for me to believe in a God of wrath. It's difficult for me to believe in a God who, who's loving, but will also do that. And so I think there's probably in this room those who are split on that. They're like, yes, vengeance. And some of you are like, I don't know about vengeance. And that's okay for us to admit that. It's okay for us to to admit that there are things in the Bible that make us uneasy. But I think I I can provide some some comfort and some truth to both groups of people here. God will pour out his wrath. He will establish justice. There's a day that he has set aside for judging the earth. And those who are in Christ Jesus will receive eternal life. Those who are not in Christ Jesus based off their their sins and what they have done, their rejection of God and his ways will receive eternal death. They will receive his wrath. But in the meantime, right now, there's always room for repentance. There's always room for repentance. Like, well, I, I don't know, Pastor. This is a Pastor Paul's talking really strongly about these people, right? He's talking about these Jewish people 
who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and who have set themselves against the church. Oh, wait, who, who else does that remind us of? It reminds us of Paul. Paul is writing this. Paul was this person. Paul was the one who is killing Christians and setting himself against the church, setting himself against the way of God, fighting against the gospel of Jesus. He's the very person that he's now describing in this section. This was Paul. He's someone who had heaped up his sin to the max, imprisoning and taking part in the killing of Christians. He was deserving of wrath. He was deserving of wrath, but the gospel of our Lord Jesus proved itself to be true even for the chief of sinners, as Paul describes himself. Even for a man so far gone as Paul, the gospel proved itself to be true. There is no heart that is too hardened for the gospel. There is no heart that's too hardened for the gospel. There is no person that is unredeemable. Not your political enemy, not the one who, who has sinned in gross ways that you can't even comprehend. There is no person that is unredeemable. And Paul, Paul, the one writing this, is evidence for that. But again, let's, let's be honest for a moment. I'm not sure that we always like that, right? Can we just be honest for a moment? Can we, can we just talk? Like, I'm not sure that we, we always like that. Like those who position themselves as enemies of the church, those who have done terrible things that we can't comprehend, things that we talk about in, in hushed tones. It's really hard sometimes to want to see those people come to know Jesus. It's really hard to want them to experience mercy and grace. My flesh, again, it, it wants vengeance. It doesn't want forgiveness. It wants retribution. It doesn't want reconciliation. These people are vile. They've lived a, a terrible life. And in that moment, I have to remember that that's me. I have to remember my sin that was equally appalling before God. I have to remember my sin that I heaped up to the max that was deserving of God's wrath. I have to remember that God was willing to save me in spite of my sin. Not because I was righteous, not because I was good, not because I, I did the right things. He saved me in spite of my sin. Jesus took on the wrath that I deserve. He bore the wrath that we deserved upon the cross. He died in our place. He traded his life for ours. Like we can read this passage and we can be like, yeah, we want, it. we want people to see God, but what about justice? Jesus is the justice. He took our place. He bore our sins. He took the wrath that we deserved. There's justice because of Jesus. While there was nothing good in us, when even our, our good things were like filthy rags before God, God's provenient grace beckoned us to respond to the gospel of Jesus. This is what God has done. Praise God that he is not the way that we sometimes want him to be. 
Praise God that he is merciful and gracious because if he wasn't, we wouldn't be saved. If he wasn't merciful and gracious, we wouldn't be saved. We wouldn't be sitting here today. Jesus took our place. He took our wrath. All who trust in him have forgiveness. And we can say it's not fair, and that's right. It's not fair. It's grace. We're not getting what we deserve. That's mercy. And we're getting something far better. That's, that's grace. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short. We probably did it this morning before we got to church. By how we have lived our lives, we are deserving of the wrath of God. But the gift of God in Christ Jesus is the forgiveness of our sins. It's the adoption as children of God. It's to live with God forever in perfect peace, in perfect love. Not because we've earned it, because of Jesus. Friends, we need to keep the gospel ever before us. We need to remember God's love and his grace and his mercy. Keeping that that gospel message ever before us, like this church in Thessalonica. You're like, this is the way we're going to walk in it. We need to pray for the gospel to bear fruit in us and in those who are our enemies. We are to trust in God when we face trials and tribulations, saying, God, I don't want this to happen. This doesn't seem right, but I know that you are a God of justice, and I know that those who position themselves as your enemies will receive what they are due. We're to be people who, who live as Jesus lived. We're to be foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires, those things that wage war against our soul. We're to live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse us of doing wrong, though they say vile things about us, though they say all of this, they may see our good deeds. They may see how we live and glorify God on the day that he visits us. That's what Peter says in 1 Peter 2. The type of life that he ascribes to those who are in Christ. Yes, they, they throw vile things uh, against you. They say all of this. They, they, they do all of this against you. And, and yes, they're deserving of God's wrath. But maybe, maybe just maybe, you'll live rightly before them. They'll see the way that you live and, and they'll be provoked the power of the Spirit to respond rightly and come to saving faith and glorify God on the day that he arrives. No longer receiving wrath, but receiving sonship, receiving adoption. We must never allow our hearts to become hardened. We need to continue to cultivate the soil of our soul so that Christ may be formed in us. Okay, I got one last thing, and I, I won't take very long. So uh, that whole passage that we're talking about, we're talking about wrath, we're talking about grace, we're talking about uh, people that have positioned themselves as enemies of God and, and the gospel being the word of God, the, the way, the truth, the life. We're talking about some things here. And, and I saw this pastor this week, 
And he posed this question. And I think it's really relevant to our discussion today. And it was just this, this question that I saw while scrolling through, through Instagram. And it's just this, how often are we praying for everyone to be saved? How often are we praying for everyone to be saved? Not just like those that are in our family. Not just those who, who are friends. How often are we praying for everyone to be saved? Like, like all of Plattsburgh, all of the North Country, all of North America, all of the world. How often are we praying that prayer? And never? Not often? Maybe in a passing moment or, or maybe in frustration saying, God, can you just, can you just save everyone? Can't, can't you make this world better? Like sometimes it's a lament that will come out. But how often are we actually praying this? Never. I bring this up. We're far too timid in our belief in what God can do. We're far too timid in our belief in what God can do. We're like, oh, the world hates God and they're going to get what they deserve. But we never intercede. We never beseech God for their salvation. We say, yes, there are people that are living as enemies of God, but how often are we brought to our knees? How often are we brought to tears? How often do we sit in our bed at night praying, God, they perish. They perish. They're, they're your enemies. Are our hearts so hard? Are our hearts so unmoved? Have we so misunderstood the gospel? Leonard Ravenhill once, once wrote, the reason we don't have revival is because we're so content to live without it. So content to live without it. We, we have a business as usual mentality that this is the way things are. And there are those who live this way and there's, well, there's nothing really we can do about it. Well, God saved us, didn't he? God saved us, didn't he? Can't he save them? Can't he pour out his grace and his mercy and his love? May we not be a people who, who, are, who are willing to stay in the status quo. May we not be a people who say, yeah, they're going to get what they deserve. May we be a people who beseech the throne of God, saying, God, would you save them? Would you show me how to live, O oh Lord, that they may come to know you? Will you give me the words to say so that they may come to know you? Even though they reject me, even though they hurl insults uh, about me, may, may I be a person who contends for the gospel to go forth. May we be a people who say, you can hate me, you can persecute me, you can threaten to kill me, but I will still love you. And I will still seek for you to be reconciled to Jesus. May we be a church who contends for our community and world to develop a transformational relationship with Jesus. Like, is that just words that we say? Is that just a, a vision that we, just, we, come, we have come out of our mouth? Or is it something that we really want to see happen? Like if it's just words and you're just like, yeah, I, I hope that someday maybe these people will have a transformational relationship, but you know, I don't really want to do anything. If that's your heart, man, it's not God's heart. God desires for all people to be saved. 
Oh, for the gospel to truly take root in us. Oh, for the heart of God to be manifest in us. Oh, for eyes to see people how God sees them. May we be a people who see the word of God for as it truly is. Not a carefully crafted scheme of man, but the very words of God. May we be a people who have such faith in the God who saved us that we contend for the salvation of those around us. And let's stand together. Let's pray. I think there's some time here where we, where we need to repent, need to admit how we've been living. Maybe we need to do some repentance this morning for, for just being so happy that God's going to pour out his wrath. Maybe we need to do some repentance this morning for not seeing the seriousness that, pe- that God is going to pour out his wrath. We need to seek the Lord together. Let's pray. How we thank you. We thank you that while we were sinners, while we were dead in our trespasses, while we were your enemies, choosing to live our lives under our Lordship, you saved us. Not because we deserved it, oh Lord, you know we didn't deserve it. But you saved us because of your great love. Because of your desire to see your creation renewed. Though we continually spat in your face, you continued to bear with us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for for the gospel that frees us. Thank you for the gospel that saves us. Thank you for the gospel that reconciles us to you. God, help us to become truly like you. Help us to experience the transformed life. Help us to become imitators of you. And we live in a world that's against you. We live in a world that lives contrary to you. We live in a time, in a place where people want us to shut up. People want to silence the gospel going forth. We live in a time when many live as enemies of you, O Lord. And we recognize that you will pour out justice. You will pour out your wrath. We recognize that those who live contrary to your ways will receive hell.
how we ask for you to do a new work in us. God, conform us to your ways, conform us to your image. Help us to have faith for those who live as your enemies. And help the gospel to actually be true to us. Help the good news to actually be good news to us, Lord. Help us to see others the way that you see them, that though they are your enemies and though they are deserving as wrath, that you gave your life for them. How we ask for the salvation of the people of Plattsburgh, the people of the North Country. For all of them, Lord. Oh, he asks for you to, to save people out of witchcraft, to save people out of new age living. Oh, he asks you to save people out of secular humanism. How oh, we believe that you can do it. And if we don't, help our unbelief, Lord. Help us to not be satisfied with this life as we know it. May we be a people whose hearts pain over those who don't yet know you, knowing that their eternity is separation from you without the gospel. Help us to be a people who are moved over the unsaved masses around us. May we not be a people who have been lulled to sleep. May we not be a people who are content. The world around us perishes, Lord. You are the God who brings life. You're the God who does a new thing. You're a God who sees the valley of dry bones and says, I can make them live again. You, O oh Lord, are still at work, you're still moving. Christ's name that we pray.